Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Jean Nu Chong. He received an MFA from Columbia University, and his short stories have appeared in Southern Review, Chicago Quarterly Review, and Salamander. His new novel, his first novel, is Flux, which is published by our friends at Melville House. Chinu, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And my first question for you, Jinu, before we dive into your novel, is how did you get hooked up with Melville House straight out of your MFA program? And what has it been like working with them? They uh, Let me first say they are an incredible publisher. Mm-hmm. They're so adept. They're all the most passionate people I could have asked for. They're they're just wonderful champions. And I feel like that's what you sort of need as a debut author in a publisher. You need someone to advocate for you and to believe that you're amazing. Because I think a lot of, you know, people starting out um, with not too many publications to their name have trouble believing in themselves. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful publisher. Uh, my journey to them is slightly convoluted because it took a while to uh, sell Flux. I think we were on submission for almost seven months um, to the point where, you know, it was starting to get like a very depressing edge to it. A lot of people passed saying that this book was too hybrid or it was a little too confusing plot wise or that they had trouble kind of seeing what what they could really do with it um, or how it fit into their lists. I didn't hear anything, any of that from uh, my editor, Carl, at Melville House, who's wonderful. They, it, it became, you know, they were pretty much the only people to to make an offer on, on the book. Um, and my relationship with them has blossomed into this like amazing partnership that you know when you go into something like that and they're the only offer on the table and things like you never know what's going to happen and you want more than anything to just publish a book so you take it but uh i i really lucked out with them they are they're they're just very like upstart very scrappy and but they have so much heart in what they do and that's all you can ask for Absolutely. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Jinu. Uh, Let's now dive into this wonderfully insane novel, uh, Flux. And Jinu, you open your novel uh, by writing about a television show. Uh, What is this show and what does it have to do with your story? The show is uh, what I think 80s television was like. I was not there when shows like you know, Knight Rider and Hill Street Blues when Miami Vice were on. But this is what I think they were like. And probably with a bit of uh, stylization to it. It's a, it's uh, what I thought of for this novel and the show, which is called Raider, is um, 
a very dark kind of very heavy detective detective show along the lines of I don't know what early law and order used to be that kind of dealt almost totally in tone and mood over plot and um I don't really know where it came from I just I think that uh shows like Stranger Things have kind of ignited this interest in maybe not a truthful representation of 80s media but a very kind of postmodern stylized version of it that is so attractive and that has that has bled into into fashion and and beauty and uh just even music like everybody's doing like 80s stuff now and it feels like it just felt like a wonderful place to um go wild with my imagination yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And these uh, trends always come full circle. I'm ready for the 90s resurgence myself. Um, <laughs> I you know, think it's, it's already here. Yeah, 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 for <laughs> sure. Um, well, Gino, you write about this show, uh, quote, you know why you only did two seasons? Because your critics weren't ready for you, end quote. And Gino, you don't see this too much uh, with books and literature, but we do see TV series, brilliant TV series, canceled all of the time because people don't love or perhaps more importantly don't understand a show immediately. And for a while, some of the best writing was happening on television, uh, but now, especially in the past year or so, one gets the sense that uh, TV series will not get a chance to grow uh, into a story or into their audience. How as an artist, is one to survive in this type of environment? Like, can you imagine a literary landscape that is full of nothing but Colleen Hoover's? Not that there's anything wrong with Colleen Hoover, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think you touched on this. The, I've, I've, the thing that has kind of eroded and what I've seen kind of erode is people's willingness to stick with something like the our our obsession with instantaneous kind of uh, what is it instantaneous comprehension love gratification all of that has kind of made I think television executives and media executives think well if it doesn't land on the first try then it's not worth it and that's a big that's a point that I that's in this book is that Raiders first season. It doesn't really make that much sense because they're still trying to find their footing, and, and it's only after the show in the in the this fictional mythos of the show. It's only after this show starts to deal with like Little China, which is this sort of Asian diasporic neighborhood, and starts to deal with stories in there. That's when it finds its footing. That that uh, that's when you know it becomes something worthwhile. And nobody wants to take that chance anymore. I feel like, you know, what I can, I watch a lot of sitcoms and a lot of silly, like stupid things because they make me happy. But uh, the first season of Schitt's Creek, which was the biggest show in the world for one year, like the first season was awful mm. and it was just awkward and stupid and had made no sense. And only until season two and three onwards did it find its heart 
And I don't think a show like that would survive. When you see something like, you know, Abbott Elementary now that from the bat was a home run, like everybody loved it. Everybody fell in love with it. That's the only thing people want to see anymore. And it leaves out, it just deletes any possible margin for trial and error and to get better. And it's made it harder for anybody to put out good work. Yeah. And that I think crosses, that crosses the line from TV to books to literally everything artistic being put out, you know? Yeah. Um, I agree. And that is a shame. That's where uh, the shorter and shorter attention spans are, um, are harming art for sure. Um, well, thank you, Jinu. Um, in the first chapter of your book, uh, there's a character, Gil, who is in a relationship with uh, our protagonist. And Gil doesn't understand our protagonist's enthusiasm uh, for this television character in this show and the actor who portrays him. And Jinu, my question is, can a relationship succeed if one person has an intolerance for the other person's passions? <laughs> that's amazing um i think that they take a little bit more work but i don't think we can write them off as just untenable mm. i feel like you can find things that well if it's not you know if you speaking you know about just relationships if if you care enough you can find points of commonality and the funny part of like uh, the the funny part of Flux is that nobody understands Brandon's interest, mm. and they're all looking at him, being like, "I have no idea why you like it," and it doesn't deter Brandon, mm. and it's probably the basis for his kind of alienation or kind of his pushing away of everybody close to him. And so, but you know, I would probably disagree with him there that I don't think you can. I don't think it's fair to just write people off because they don't get what you like. Uh, part of, you know, I think part of what makes my relationships with, with friends so enriching is that we disagree on a lot of the things that we like. And then we have these spirited discussions about it. Mm. And, you know, that's the danger of echo chambers, I feel like. And everybody liking one thing, like who, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing of substance that goes on if, if that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Genial. Um, Brandon uh, is in marketing, um, and he makes a statement early in the novel to the effect that when there is a rate hike uh, in a magazine subscription, no one notices an extra $89 a year uh, leaving their account. Um, my question, Genu, is why don't people recognize this? And, and I know they don't. I know people who have no idea how many streaming services they are subscribed to or what they cost. Um, what is this business model that is based on this sort of passive amnesia when it comes to monthly charges and do you think this is a model that can continue to thrive wow uh i would like to think well hopefully not that would be pretty bleak if you know if i looked and netflix was a thousand dollars one day like but that seems to be the attitude of you know corporations that control media and that's upsetting and I think maybe I was trying to comment on 
you know, the fact that everybody is kind of bowing, Brendan, Brendan included, is sort of bowing down to this very uh, bleak capitalist vision that um, doesn't do anybody good except for the pe people at the very top. And which I think is kind of a reflection of, of our reality. Uh, you know, the, it, it doesn't really make sense why people would acquiesce to that sort of thing, but it's, it seems to be human nature and, and this growing, as we say, as we said before, like degradation of attention that people just don't care as much. And, uh, you know, they're willing to go on with whatever this like very sterling kind of shining thing tells them the, they see, you know, Disney plus as authority. So they're okay with raising it another $20 because Disney plus was the one that said it like, so it's like this culture of subservience as well that I think is being touched on. Absolutely. And you cannot miss that latest uh, Marvel or Star Wars television series. Um, <laughs> well, thank you, Gino. Uh, listeners, we are going to take a short break here to hear a word from our sponsors. And then I will be right back with Gino Chong. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Chi Nu Chong, author of Flux, which is published by our friends at Melville House. Chi Nu, what is the blackout that you write about in the first chapter? How did it affect the world in your novel? And to expand a bit, how close do you think we are to a complete breakdown of society as we know it, if there is some sort of catastrophic power failure or interruption in the food supply chain? <laughs> I really, I will point to that weird period last year where Oregon was like 300 degrees and society collapsed there. Like the roads were melting. People lost the people's houses were melting. So I feel like uh, all it takes is something larger to just completely destabilize us. I think it's already happened. And, but, you know, as, as everyone will say, nobody really cares because it didn't happen to them. And so that's the upsetting part of it. And part, and, and something that I found myself kind of satirizing in this book, because this blackout happened and to contextualize these are rolling like electrical blackouts that knock power away from the entire east coast 
from huge swaths of the country for hours at a time. And these are things that are treated with absolute nonchalance by the characters. Like, I think that was purposeful uh, in which they kind of, whenever it comes up, everyone says, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And then they move on, which I feel like is very much the real attitude, at least of Americans towards towards the 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 total the incoming like collapse and um i think it was just a way to be funny but it's also not funny it's pretty bleak the uh, the and you know we track throughout the book how these blackouts are the reason why people put so much faith in this clean energy startup called flux which has pledged to solve the energy crisis and, you know, it's like this Band-Aid solution that people flock to. That's why they make the, that's why all of this makes the founder a billionaire and g- creates all of this talk over it. And for nothing, really, it's, it's, a, it's just a, an idea that doesn't even work. That, that is the crux, the crux of this company. But I tried to, I tried to, I set up the blackouts as this, you know, reason to point to why why society has just kind of completely adopted something like this, which I think plays out all the time in uh, in the real world for many different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Chinu. And this um, is a natural uh, segue into my next question, which is for our listeners. Uh, can you go into a little more detail about who is Flux and what has happened to them? So this company is kind of the, the, the heart of the novel and it's the thing that moves the entire plot along. And it's basically, I wrote it as a proxy for Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. It's very easy to see the similarities between the two, but it is this, uh, it's like an energy startup that claims to have invented an unexpirable battery that, that gives something akin to perpetual energy. Um, it's complete farce. Like it's a total lie that the batteries don't work as we as we later learn throughout the novel. But you know the the rise and fall of this company um, as people kind of embrace it fully without knowing anything and then kind of become privy to all of the horrible stuff that this company is doing in pursuit of this, this unattainable goal. Um, that's what I tracked out the whole novel. And that's probably the first thing I thought of when I was mapping out this book, because I had just read Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. Um, I had just kind of come off this like, oh my God, like what happened with Theranos? Like, and it's still happening. Elizabeth Holmes, there's still, there's still news items coming out about how she like tried to flee to New Mexico and all of these. It's It's captured people's attention in the same way it captured mine and I wanted to, I was so attracted to a story that tracked, you know, the life and death of, of a total lie and a scam and how it can become so real with nothing behind it. And we see that happening, you know, the, literally all the time, like WeWork happened. And then most recently Sam Bankman-Fried happened and Anna Delvey, like people are in love with this storyline of the lie. Um, and I am too, which is why I wanted to to write a book about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Genio. Um, in the first chapter, uh, our protagonist, Brendan, he gets fired. Um, he receives eight weeks severance uh, and immediately spends this severance uh, and more on what is basically a glorified fanny pack, um, <laughs> despite the clerk who sees his severance check warning him not to. Um, my question, Genu, is does retail therapy ever work? Like, why do people spend destructively in order to make themselves feel better for a very brief moment? <laughs> Uh, I think people are in love with the idea of retail therapy. Like they are, they are attracted to this idealized version of it in which, you know, what you see in the media, you buy yourself something amazing and they see it make people happier. And so they kind of think that that's actually what happens. And it doesn't, of course, this actually, like the first chapter basically actually happened to me because I was laid off from my first ever job by a company that took over my company, eliminated all our positions. I went downstairs after this call with HR and I bought a wallet at the mall or something. And it was an egregiously expensive wallet. And I remember this feeling of like, oh my gosh, like this is great. Walking up to the cashier being like, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna feel amazing. Um, and, and then after buying it, thinking, well, this sucks. I'm still sad. And I wanted to just, I wanted to capture that. It, it felt like it was partly really funny, darkly, but it was also just, I think, a truth about what people, what the, the people that pour their expectations and their hopes into material things and are, are constantly uh, put down by it. Right, right. Well, you had a nice wallet. You might not have had anything to put in it, but um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, well, thank you, Genu. Uh, our protagonist in the second chapter, um, who who some folks call Blue, uh, is a mute. He receives a device called a Fruit Loop uh, that will enable <laughs> him to speak for a brief moment of time. Uh, why does he receive this? What is going on with Blue? And um, is it cruel to give people the ability to have this device when it has such a small shelf life? <laughs> well, that's, I think that's the point of it, is that Blue is given the ability to speak for a television special. Like they are interviewing him because Blue used to work at Flux. And, you know, they are trying to figure out like what's they're doing this like 2020 style story like what went wrong here and they're interviewing him and the producer is saying like that's going to be bad tv if he can't talk so let's give him the fruit loop and make him talk and it's such a throwaway thing that i think is designed for it's it that whole plot point is designed to be unfair because no one actually cares about him it's just, you know, he's part of this narrative that they're trying to tell in exchange for good ratings. So that's really the trade-off. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Genu. Um, finally, uh, I never really understood social media influencers and what it is that they do exactly. Um, 
and granted, I never spent that much time thinking about it, but um, now that I've read your book, I get it. And it was a small passage that unlocked this for me uh, when, when Brandon is thinking about marketing and the job he's just been laid off from and what they will do after he's gone. Um, my question, Gino, is what is your perception of the role of a social media influencer? And do you think the popularity and sway that these influencers hold is fleeting or is this a permanent part of our culture going forward? I honestly do think it is permanent because the internet is not going to go away. And I feel like the poison of the internet has been to let everybody know what everybody else is up to at all moments of the day. And I don't think influencers are in any way effective at pushing the product or anything. It's their lifestyle that people are attracted to. I read something that said like the majority of young children today, their dream job is influencer. And it's not because they wanna like work with brands and push a product. It's because they wanna be rich and buy Gucci shoes and drive Lamborghinis and, and have just the most ridiculous flashy like in the world. That's what I think, you know, social media has done and it's evil. Uh, but I don't think it's going to go away because, you know, it's just become more and more like that. And maybe the single redeeming point is, is I feel like that same access to everybody's lives at every moment has given us like kind of a sobering look at how terrible people can be sometimes um, and how much kind of insidiousness is sinking under the surface, which I think you know, became kind of overt when Trump was elected and then everybody kind of proudly revealed themselves to be bigots. But it's in the in that same way that everybody, not everybody proudly, that his supporters revealed and, and a large number of people you would never expect to be bigoted kind of revealed themselves to be that way. I think the same thing uh, has been facilitated by social media, which I think is good. Like it's it's good to know, you know, what people's beliefs really are, um, whether they mean it or not. Um, but the price of it is just the total sacrifice of our privacy, uh, which is, you know, very daunting and saddening, but it's only, it's only as insidious as you let it because you have to elect into social media. And, you know, a lot of people don't, and I feel like they're a lot happier because of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I live in a kind of alternate universe in a bookstore here, but I, ever since I moved to Aspen, Colorado, you know, it's like a town of just a couple thousand people. And I think 80% of them identify as influencers or some such thing. Gross um, <laughs> generalization, but sort of true. Um, well, thank you so much, Genu, and thank you for writing this fantastic novel, which is sure to spark conversation for the rest of the year and beyond. Listeners, I've been speaking with Jinu Chong, author of Flux, which is published by our friends at Melville House. Jinu, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Once again, I would like to thank Jinu Chong for joining me. Copies of Flux can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. 
I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.